Why does Rice play Texas? We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. I was always a dreamer. I always saw a life beyond the life that I had as a child. It was like a big flashing light. This is what you're supposed to do. Everybody poo-pooed the idea. That work said it couldn't be done. You're in that zone, and it's that out-of-body experience where it just, everything clicks. Sometimes you have those dark moments. I was so depressed when I got fired. I was so mad. People don't need to be afraid to fail. And again, that, that's where you learn. You don't shouldn't be afraid of adversity. You know, that that is the thing that, that makes you strong. This is Jerry Levias. This is Jody Markell. This is Chi Yun. This is Dick Vitale, and you're listening to American Achievers. Welcome to American Achievers, the podcast that celebrates ambition, commitment to excellence, risk-taking, and tenacity on the road to success. I'm Keith Dunavant. Some of my guests are world-famous. Some are rather obscure. Our weekly lineup includes entrepreneurs, athletes, military heroes, civic leaders, artists, and media figures. What they all have in common is a sense of undeniable purpose and an intriguing story that reflects the power of the American dream. As an art form, photography has long suffered from its ubiquity. Especially in this smartphone age, the camera is just another appliance, and we can all push a button. Of course, most of us can't wield the camera like a paintbrush. Neil Leifer can and does. What a wonderful American story. Neil grew up poor on New York's Lower East Side, delivered sandwiches to buy his first camera, talked his way into Sports Illustrated, where he became one of the greatest sports photographers of all time. For more than 60 years, Leifer has found the humanity in famous subjects, including Muhammad Ali, Bear Bryant, Vince Lombardi, Willie Mays, and Ronald Reagan. His most iconic picture of the ferocious Ali standing over the fallen Sonny Liston feels like part of our collective consciousness, as evocative of the 60s as the first few bars of Love Child or the grainy footage of Neil Armstrong descending onto the lunar surface. Now it's time for Neil Lifer's close-up on American Achievers. You grew up on the Lower East Side of Manhattan. Uh, tell me about your early life and your influences. Well, you know, my father was, I don't, I don't think my father finished high school. I'm not certain. My mother came over from Poland and, uh, you know, neither were educated. They were poor. We lived in a low-income housing project. When I look back, that's probably whatever success I've had, I think I got my, my drive, uh, my ambition, my relentless pursuit of succeeding from from growing up there it was a great place to be and a you know and a good place to start out to start out as a as a young person with with dreams never expected that so many of them would come true but i've been very lucky what did you dream about as a as a young boy 
Well, the first thing I dreamed about was getting the hell out of the Lower East Side. <laughs> it was a wonderful place, but, you know, I was aware that there was a whole world out there. I, uh, my mother and father never traveled. They couldn't afford vacations. You know, my mother came over on a boat from Poland. That's the only travel she ever had. You know, uh, my dad, uh, we would occasionally go to Coney Island. That was about, that was a big trip. Uh, you know, I wanted I wanted to see the country. I wanted to see the world. Uh, I was a huge sports fan, and uh, certainly when I, when I got into photography, the idea of being able to combine my love of sport with my passion for photography gave gave me an opportunity to make some of those dreams come true. I can still remember dreaming of going to the L.A. Coliseum because my Brooklyn Dodgers had moved to L.A., and I'd see photographs of the Dodgers playing in, in the Coliseum, and and I read a little bit about the history of the Coliseum having hosted an Olympic Games. It, I think Joe Lewis fought a heavyweight championship there. I wanted to go. That crazy short left field, I wanted to see it. Photography and, and, and my dreams are what really led me to, to pursue the ability to go do those things. When you were about 13, I think it was, you started taking photography lessons at something called the Henry Street Settlement House. Now, what was that? Well, not not really lessons. Uh, you know, the Lower East Side was a pretty rough neighborhood. I mean, it was primarily Italian, Irish, and Jewish. About a third, a third, and a third. There were gangs. There were drugs. There were kids getting into trouble. You know, there used to be a, not a joke about it. Not saying about the Lower East Side. It produced two kinds of kids. Half of them went up the river. We used to say the Sing Sing Prison, and the other half became the judges that sent them there. Judges and lawyers that sent them there. But the settlement houses were designed to keep kids off the street at night, to keep them from getting in trouble, to sort of give them something to do that would be fun. Maybe I I never knew there was a profession called photojournalism, so I certainly didn't start taking pictures because I I thought I was going to be a photographer. My mother and father were I was a good student, and my mother and father were convinced they had a young doctor or lawyer on their hands photographer, they couldn't imagine that, and neither could I. But the settlement house was open seven days a week, and you could sign up for different programs, different things just to have fun. Uh, I loved, even though I was I was certainly never close to being great at it, and I wasn't very tall, but I loved playing basketball. I was a decent basketball player, so I can't remember whether it was two or three nights a week. I would go and play basketball at Henderson Settlement. You belong to the gym, and and whatever nights you signed up for, those those were your nights to go to the gym. There were a number of other possibilities. I mean, I was never in learning. I was never interested in learning to play an instrument, but they had classes where you could learn to play a piano. And kids kids on Lower East Side couldn't, even if they could afford a piano, if their parents could afford a piano, nobody had an apartment that was big enough to put one in. But you could learn to play a piano at the settlement house. You could learn to play a violin. You could learn to dance, whether it was classical, some ballet classes that were that were just social dancing. Uh, there were things to do, and one of the other clubs they had was a camera club, and it was uh, it was run by a a lady named Nelly. I can't pronounce it. Polish lady named Nelly, whose last name was unpronounceable, so I won't try to pronounce it. But any parent, any any anybody that has kids knows the importance of a good teacher. And Nellie was just, she was an excellent teacher and she made photography fun. And what the center, what the camera club did was they lent, kids couldn't afford cameras most of or film, but they lent you a camera. They had a, some 
company, camera company, had donated cameras. I think there were like there were eight or ten of us each night because they had a, each kid had to have an enlarger where they could print when the when the day came when you were going to print the pictures. So it was a fairly small room, and there were eight or ten of us in the in the group. And what you would do is on the weekend you'd go out and take a roll of film. Normally that meant twelve pictures on a roll because we were using a twin lens reflex kind of camera and uh, Brownie Hawkeye, I mean, that was my first camera. And you'd shoot a roll of film on the weekend. Some kids went to the Bronx Zoo and shot the animals. Some kids went and just shot their family or their friends in the street. Uh, we used to have a contest every year, for example, which I never won, I might add, which always pissed me off. But uh, we had a contest every every year for who would take the best picture. The idea was to try to be creative. Who would take the best picture of the Christmas tree in Rockefeller Center? So you would do that over the weekend or whatever days. And, and the days would be either you would be at the camera club on Monday and, and Wednesday, or you were Tuesday and Thursday, or maybe Friday. And I, I don't remember it was seven days a week, but I, uh, it was Monday or Wednesday or Tuesday or Thursday. And what would happen is you'd shoot a roll of film and then you'd come in on the first day if your day was Monday. And Nellie would watch and teach you how to develop that roll of film into, in, into negatives. And then you would pick one or two frames that were your best pictures for that. And the following day, the Thursday or Wednesday, whichever was your second day, on that day, she taught you how to make a photographic print out of the pictures. And I, like I said, she was a wonderful teacher and she made photography fun and exciting. And I got hooked on it. And, and then and we had some other good kids that came out of that group. My closest friend for the last 50, 60 years almost, Johnny Iacona, not only was was in the same group I was in at the Henry Street Settlement. But Johnny became a staff photographer at Sports Illustrated, just like I did. And in fact, when, when I moved on to Time Magazine and uh, you know, boxing was sort of a passion for me in terms of photography, Johnny, got to, Johnny pretty well got the boxing beat and did most of the fights in the 80s and when, when I was no longer at Sports Illustrated. Did you realize at that young age that you could have gone either way and the photography was your ticket out? I really didn't think about it. I, I knew that, you know, I was in an advanced class at school. I knew that I had options that my parents certainly didn't have. I also knew that they weren't in a position to afford my going. Certainly no fancy school. I don't know that they could have paid for a college tuition, but they, their hope was, of course, I would get a scholarship somewhere. And, and we had the City College in New York turned out some very successful people. Uh, there were places one could go that were still tuition-free or whatever. Uh, but, I, you know, what kids at 12, 13, 14, or 15 is thinking of, how am I going to make a living one day? Those were the furthest things from my mind. And photography was fun and sports were fun. And one day I discovered, and I went into high school, I became the picture editor of the, of the school newspaper. I assigned myself to all the sports, sports shoots, of course. And Johnny Iacona, this friend I was telling you about, he was my staff photographer. I assigned him to the ballet class, to the music concert, to the ribbon, cut, ribbon cutting, you know, if there was something that was school was doing. You know, I had no idea that this was really going to be, I, you're supposed to outgrow your hobbies. I used to collect stamps and I collected coins at one time. You know, you outgrow them. What was it about photography that connected with you, that lit you up inside at that well, age? I got great enjoyment out of seeing my pictures published, whether they were published in the school newspaper and certainly later on when they became, when they 
began getting published in national magazines. Uh, I loved seeing the credit photographed by Neil Leifer. I also wanted to take better pictures every time I saw them. I was an avid credit reader, and my heroes were the uh, John Zimmerman, Hyde Peskin, Mark Kaufman, Marvin Newman at Sports Illustrated, all the great Life magazine photographers, Eisenstadt, uh, Carl Mindans, Ralph Morse, Gordon Parks. They, they became my heroes, and I wanted, in a sense, I was hoping one day my pictures would be as good as some of theirs. The, the whole thing was fun, and, and think about it. If you don't have money to be able to afford tickets to a, to a good event, a sporting event, or a rock concert or whatever, what better way to have the best seat in the house than to be photographing it for, with a press credential? And so, so, so you're, and you're a kid, and you figure out a way to start getting into Giants games. Well, that had nothing to do with the with the traditional way. That was simply <laughs> uh, one, one. I wanted to get into this. There were two two factors. One, I wanted to get into the stadium, and I couldn't afford a ticket. And two, even if I could afford a ticket, there was no way you were going to be close enough to the action to be able to get any good pictures. And I I didn't have a good camera. I had a I had a seventy five dollar Yashica mat which probably was the best thing that could have happened to me because the picture I got that we're going to talk about in a minute, I would never have gotten if I had a good camera. I, I dreamed of having a 35 millimeter camera with a medium telephoto lens so I could fill the frame with the action at one, at one, one my team, the New York Giants, football Giants played at Yankee Stadium. And I hope people understand the import. you got to get the import of, of what he just said here in a minute, because this is heading for the first of a series of iconic photographs. First, how could I get in the stadium? And secondly, since I couldn't afford a ticket, and secondly, was it possible to get somewhere where I might actually be able to get some good pictures? And I found out, you've got to remember, in the 60s and probably through the 70s as well, I think, I don't remember when stadiums were required by law to become uh, handicap-friendly. But they certainly weren't handicap friendly in, in the sixties. There were, you know, other than a other than a freight elevator, there was no way to bring in a lot of wheelchair people and take them up to a place where they could watch the game from. Uh, there was no place in the stands that really accommodated wheelchairs. You just couldn't do it. I mean, I guess the, maybe they could accommodate a few, but certainly not any any large number. But Yankee Stadium. Right next to each of the bullpens, the Yankee bullpen in, in right field and the visitors bullpen in left field, I think, I think that was where each of them was, there was a ramp, a ramp that was designed so a truck could come in with whatever, whatever produce, the things that a stadium needs to keep in operation. Obviously, when you're bringing in large things, you want to get them right down to where you could bring them into wherever they have to go. And they had two service ramps. And... Every Sunday, I found, I discovered, I think I found it out right at the beginning of the 58th season. It could have been at the end of the 57th season. I don't remember. But I know in 58, I went to every single Giant game because I discovered that every Sunday, there was a, an Army Veterans Hospital in, in the Bronx, uh, fairly close to the stadium. I think it was probably a five-minute drive away. And every Sunday... They would come through six or seven games a season in those days, six home games. And every Sunday they would come to the stadium in buses. There'd be five, six buses would come depending on how many veterans. And it would be depending on what the weather was like. There would be anywhere from 30 veterans to maybe 50 or 60 veterans in wheelchairs. And they needed help bring them into the stadium, you know, wheel them down the ramp, and they hoped you'd stick around to wheel them out after the game to help them. 
a lot of people helped them and didn't because the worst place to see a game from is, is, is from the one end zone at ground level. You can't see anything at the other end of the field. So a lot of people would help wheel in a veteran and then they would disappear. They would sort of make an excuse that they were going to the restroom. They get into the stands and they'd watch the game from a better vantage point. I was thrilled with the idea. I could not only wheel them in, but I'd be right on the field. I don't know if you if you know remember what the stadium looked like with with three monuments in center field. One was Babe Ruth, I think. One was one of the great Yankee managers. One might have been Lou Gehrig, and they would line the wall right out where the monuments were. And what for baseball would have been dead center field. For football, it was sort of the one the one of the two end zones, and the way the football field was laid out, the closest spots to some of the wheelchairs was. 30, maybe 20, 30 feet away from the end zone line, from the back of the end zone. So I would show up every week. And after the first couple of weeks, once the guys that were running this thing realized that I would not only help them wheel in the veterans, but I'd be there when the game was over to wheel them out. And they took me in every week and I had my Yashika mat uh, with me. And uh, when the play got down to my end zone, there were times when I would be literally 10 yards away from the goal line when they were right on the goal line. And what happened, of course, is the end of that game, uh, Alan Amici scored a sad day for me because they beat my Giants, but I guess it wasn't that sad. Could it, it's, as, yeah, as let's, you, yeah let's, let's back up a little bit and set the scene. So this is your 16th birthday, right? December 28, 1958. Tell me about the game, that, that the game is, day. The game has been called the greatest game ever played. It was Johnny Unitas and the Baltimore Colts playing against my New York Giants. Uh, and it was the first game, very first game, that ended up with sudden death. It was an incredible game. And, of course, late in the game, the uh, game was tied. The, the Colts tied it with a field goal uh, in, in the fourth, late in the fourth quarter. So the game went into, into sudden death. And as the sudden death happened, the Colts were coming in my direction towards my end zone. And by that point, there were so many drunken Baltimore Colt fans on the, on the field, that the, the few security guards that was, were there to make sure the field stayed clear of, of fans, would, they were a whole lot more worried about keeping fans off the actual playing field than worrying about me. And when the play got down on my end, I ended up on the goal line exactly 10 yards in front of where Amici barreled in for the winning touchdown. And, and I got what really turned out to be, it was, it was a, it's, it's a beautiful picture. To this day is one of my best known pictures and one of my favorite shots. And the irony is I would never have gotten it if I, if I had a good camera. I would not have gotten that picture because I would have been in real close like the pros were. Sports Illustrated had a, two great photographers there. They both shot the sudden death picture, but they got it close. They filled the frame with the Michi. Well, my camera couldn't do that. But it could capture the whole the ambiance of the place, the dusk, you know, the, the lights, the, the lights of the stadium, and, and a little bit of haze, a little bit of fog was creeping in, and it was just beautiful. And Amici came right at me, and that was my picture. A truly iconic picture and an iconic moment in sports. Now, most people uh, who know anything about the NFL believe that was the big bang for the NFL. That was the beginning of the modern era of the National Football League. The game is always the game is still referred to this day as the greatest game ever played. Uh, I don't know if that's true, but it certainly is the greatest game I ever saw, given what happened. When did you figure out that you had this iconic photograph in your camera? Oh, years later. I, I went home that night. Actually, this is a very funny story. I, of course, was hoping I could bring my film into Sports Illustrated and have them 
consider it. I didn't know what a, how good the picture was going to be, but my father, we had moved from the Lower East Side by then, and I had a little dark room at home in the basement, and I had my own enlarger by then. I was working, so I mean, I, all of this stuff I bought myself, including the $75 Yashica mat. I delivered sandwiches at the stage delicatessen in New York and saved up my money so I could buy film and cameras or whatever. But I went home that night, Sunday night, and I uh, processed film. But I also had Amici being, and the fans carried Amici off the field. They carried him back to where the dressing rooms were. And I, I got right in front of them for that, and I got some wonderful pictures of that. So I knew I had a couple of pictures, and I decided to bring them into Sports Illustrated. I lived in the city. I mean, I lived... No, no, let's not, let's not gloss over this. You are 16 years old. <laughs> You're going to take your pictures into Sports Illustrated. Well, I started bringing my pictures to Life magazine when I was 14 or 15. They never published any of them was the problem. But, you know, sure you could bring them in. I mean, and there were, Life magazine had a miscellany page where they basically, it was almost 100% of the time, it was amateurs that would bring in something very funny. They also had a thing called Speaking of Pictures where they often, freelancers would just bring pictures in. So I was beginning to understand a little bit. And by the way, one of my best customers at Stage Zelly was the Life magazine studio which was only so i knew half of them i knew all these people already we delivered sandwiches to sports illustrated so i i knew the people i knew where i could go to show my pictures i just you know i just hadn't had any success yet but sunday night i processed my roll of film and i brought it up to sports illustrated i was a terrible darkroom technician my pictures my prints were never quite good the blacks were gray they i just didn't get the contrast you could get in it i had no idea what a professional print would look like with one of my negatives but my were fairly ordinary at best. However, I brought the, I brought up the two or three prints in my roll of film to Sports Illustrated on Monday morning, first thing, thinking, hey, maybe, they, maybe they'll consider one of my pictures because by now I've seen it. I knew I had a good picture. I didn't know how good it was. In fact, I cropped it poorly the first time. I cropped out the left side of the frame. I kept just the Nietzsche and and, and you got the Unitas just looking right at the play in the background. But I brought it up to Sports Illustrated. And there's a great guy named Ted Stephanie, who was the, he was the, he was the go-between between between the editorial, between the picture department and the photo lab. And he's, so I said, I wanted to show him the pictures. And he said, these look very nice, Neil. He said, but he said, you know, the magazine went to press Sunday night. In those that now today they close Monday night. They can hold to Tuesday if they have to. But in in the sixties, in the fifties, they closed tight on Friday night. On Sunday night is when the magazine went to press. So the Sports Illustrated photographers who had photographed the game got right back to the office after the game. And late that night, magazine was closed. So it was too late to get my pictures in. But the editor liked a couple of the pictures, so they sent them up to the photo lab and they printed them. And that was the first time I ever had a professional print made of one of my negatives. And it was just very exciting. I had no idea it was going to lead to anything more. I really didn't, you know. But I did know that I could bring my pictures up there anytime. I think they told me, come on back anytime. You shoot anything else like this, bring it up. How did that moment validate you? You know, this kid from the Lower East Side who just had these big dreams. You know, it would be a great story if I could say it did. It it, it didn't in any way. I, you wouldn't. Again, I was still at a point where you're gonna you're gonna wake up one day and realize, hey, listen, I better get a I better go to college. I better get an education. What fifteen to sixteen year old kid is thinking about how how am I going to support a family? How am I going to make a living? 
you know, you know, we had moved out of out of the low income housing project, but believe me, we were not we were not wealthy at all. My father was working in the post office, and we lived in a very very modest home. Period. I knew there was a nicer world out there. There was something better, and I would, you know, I I was never interested in money, but I was interested in, in being able to do things like travel, you know, like maybe go to see a play on Broadway one day, maybe, you know, to go to the movies was expensive. I, I would go, I was a big movie buff, but I knew that making a living would be, would be a nice thing, but one doesn't think of that. I just, you know, I had no, I had no idea what the future was going to hold for me. I truly didn't. Well, pretty quickly, you move on to a staff job at Sports Illustrated and uh, get your first cover, I think at 19. Is that right? Yes. Yes, 19 or 18. It was 1961. I got sent down. It's funny because the first cover was not meant to be the first cover. I shot a Giants game. at Yankees. At, 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 at the Giants were playing the Washington Redskins. We were doing a story at Sports Illustrated, a black and white story on, uh, on, the, on the fact that George Preston Marshall, who owned the Redskins, uh, didn't have a single African-American player on the team. And this was a story... About why they were the only team in the NFL that had yet to have a black player. This is long after Jackie Robinson broke color barrier, and and of course the NFL had a pretty fair number of African Americans playing already, but the Redskins did not. And that's what I was sent down there to do. When I shot that pregame, there was a demonstration outside. I shot all of that. When the game happened, they said just shoot color. You know, they're paying me for the whole day. So I shot the game in color and I was a Giants fan. And uh, well, and I remember to, I had a few really, really good pictures of Y.A. Tittle. But I had, there was, that was not part of the story we were shooting. And so they ran the piece on George Preston Marshall, but I didn't think a whole lot about it. Meantime, I finally got my first cover assignment. And in those days, they didn't send four photographers out to shoot a cover. Usually, if they gave you a cover assignment, you had a really good chance of getting a cover. And they sent me to Dallas, Texas, to the Cotton Bowl to shoot the Texas-Oklahoma game. I can't tell you what a thriller was to be told. You're being sent down there. We're going to do a cover. It was a running back named Jimmy Saxon. And he was going to be on the cover of Sports Illustrated. Covers closed four weeks, three to four or five weeks in advance, unlike now when they close tight right on press deadline. And that was because the color had to be processed and all that stuff, right? Oh, yes, ex exactly. So they sent me down to Texas, Texas, Oklahoma. I was thrilled. I mean, the Texas State Fair was going on. I, you know, I, I never, certainly never covered a big college game. I covered a couple of games, some Ivy League games. I think I may have gone to see Columbia play. I covered a game at West Point where you could just, take, from the city, take a bus up there and I didn't have a car yet. But uh, but now I'm going to do Texas, Oklahoma, and specifically to shoot Jimmy Saxton for the cover of the magazine. So I shot Jimmy Saxton that first Saturday, and then I think they sent me to a second. I believe I shot him uh, at, in Fayetteville, Arkansas, the following week at the Arkansas game. And now and we edited the pictures that week or the following week was the time when the picture editor was going to go in to show the managing editor a selection of my pictures of Jimmy Saxon, and the intent was to choose the cover picture that would run. I couldn't wait. I was, of course, was in the office, and photographers were never in that meeting, but I was, I knew exactly. I watched the picture editor walk down the hall with the carousel slide tray with my Jimmy Saxon pictures in it. And the meeting might have 
run 45 minutes or so. It was a long meeting, and I was it was like waiting outside the maternity ward when when you're waiting for your first baby. I couldn't wait, and Jerry Astor was the picture editor, and Jerry came back uh, from the meeting, and he had a big smile on his face. He saw me pacing in front of his office, and I said, so, Jerry, did I get the cover? And I will never forget this as long as I live. You want to talk about a fortuitous happening. He said, well, as a matter of fact, yes, you did. And then he looked at me, took sort of a dramatic pause, and he said, in fact, you got two of them. I said, wow, Jimmy Saxon is, of course, the first one. He said, no. He said, we're using one of your YA tittle pictures on the cover. And he told me whatever week on November, I think it was November. I should remember the date. It might have been November 21st was the first cover, but I'm not sure of the date. But he said, on November 21st, you're going to have YA tittle. And the following week, we're going to use Jimmy Saxon. I was speechless. I nearly felt, I, again, I had no idea they were even looking at my, at my YA Tittle pictures. I knew exactly what they were doing with my Jimmy Saxon pictures, but I had no idea. And so I got my first two covers, one right after the other. And, and by this time, you had started uh, shooting boxing. Before we get into your most iconic boxing picture here in a moment, what was it about boxing that attracted you? Well, my, my dad was a boxing fan. Uh, we used to watch the Gillette Cavalcade of Sports every Friday night. So I liked it. You know, uh, it's very exciting sport to photograph. At the very beginning, I, I just, I like covering all sports. I loved covering baseball. I loved covering football. I, I enjoyed covering basketball. You know, I did all those. I shot every everything I could. But boxing, there was something about, it was just a great time for boxing. I mean, you know, and, and I love the idea of, just the father-son relationship with boxing. And I'm jumping a little bit ahead, but when Muhammad came along, Cassius Clay, and bragging and all the boasting he did, my father couldn't stand him. And my father would get on and on. And, to, I, and I fell in love with him right away. And I, at that point, I didn't know him. I never met him. I never photographed him yet. But I watched on television and, and became a fan. And my father, and certainly when I first started photographing, I mean, you couldn't help but not love Ali. He was such a such an incredible character and such a, a personality and, and so available, really. But anyway, I, uh, I used to argue with my father uh, uh, and tell him how great Muhammad was. And my father would just tell me how Joe Lewis would have knocked him out in a minute and how, you know, when he gets against the good fighters, like Sonny Liston, you know, or Floyd Patterson or whatever, you know, I would say, no, no, Cassius Clay will, will beat any one of them. My father always told me Joe Lewis and Rocky Marciano would have had no trouble. Well, you know, it was interesting about boxing. Years later, my son, and my son is still a huge boxing fan, probably bigger than I am. My son became a boxing fan right about the time when I was photographing uh, Sugar Ray Leonard and uh, Tommy Hearns and Hagler. And, and Mike Tyson, of course, was great heavyweight champion. And my son was absolutely convinced Mike Tyson would have had no trouble with Ali, just the way I was sure that, that Ali would have had no trouble with Marciano or Joe Lewis. My son would give me the same argument. So it was just, there's something about the old boxing, because uh, I, think, I think boxing is going through a great period right now, but nobody knows who the champ is. You know, there's four different belts and the sanctioning bodies. Boxing had that great history about the man who beat the man who beat the man who beat the man. And that's why my father and I could argue over who is better, my man or his man. And my son could do the same thing years later. And I'm sure my grandson will do the same thing one day with his father. The second Ali Liston fight in Lewiston, Maine. 
all sorts of controversy. Set the scene for me and build to the drama of that iconic photograph that if you're a sports fan, unless you've been living under a rock, you know Neil's iconic picture from that night. Set that scene for me, Neil. Well, you know, I'm going to surprise you. Listen, the picture speaks for itself. But, and, and you can tell that I'm very long-winded just from the conversation we've had up until now. There was nothing special about that fight. There was nothing special about either. Just the setting was special. I mean, it, it happened because the fight was originally supposed to be in Boston and Ali had an emergency. It was either an appendectomy or a hernia. I don't remember what he had. And the fight got canceled. And there was a lot of feeling in the boxing community. It got canceled like just about a week before the fight. Nobody wanted to fight, which is why it ended up in, in, in Lewiston, Maine, in this small high school hockey or hockey arena. But there was nothing special about it. And the only the only in, intriguing part was that so many people simply didn't believe their own eyes at, at the first fight. I mean, Cassius Clay in Miami in 1964, and he fought, first he was bigger. The Liston was big, bad, sunny Liston. Well, Muhammad was in great shape without an ounce of fat on him. He weighed 220 pounds. He was six, three and a half. He was bigger. He had a bigger reach. He was an Olympic gold medal winner. He's a great athlete. Forget about boxing. Muhammad would have been, he would have been a great NFL player. He would have been probably a great baseball player. He would have been a, a in my opinion, he would have been an Olympic decathlete uh, champion, a decathlon champion had he gone into that. He beat the daylights out of out of Liston in in, uh, in Miami. I mean, look at look at the pictures of what Liston looked like at the end of that fight, and you realize how good Muhammad was, Cassius Clay that night was. So when Lewiston was just was a heavyweight championship fight, I'm shooting at ringside for Sports Illustrated. Never did I ever imagine it would become the legendary fight it was. Newspaper writers who I got to know over the years and who I truly respect for their knowledge just would not believe their own eyes. He was not the kind of athlete they were used to covering. You know, the bragging, nobody went around telling you how good they were all the time. I'm the greatest, even then, predicting the rounds. You remember the boasting before he even fought Liston the first time, he was known for predicting they all must fall in the round I call. He carried Archie Moore, I think, for three rounds when he fought Archie Moore because he promised to knock him out in the fourth round and Moore was ready to go in the first round. But it was important to, to young Cassius Clay that he beat him in the round he predicted. So he, he wouldn't let him fall down. He wouldn't hit him. <laughs> well, that night in Maine, uh, you made sure that you were in a very specific position. Made sure is about as far from the truth as you are <laughs> okay. given a position. You're given, oh, we, had, we had two photographers on the ring apron, myself and Herb Schaffman. Herb Schaffman's one of the great boxing photographers. The most famous Rocky Marciano picture uh, was, it, it's called The Rubber Face. It's a picture of Marciano creaming Jersey Joe Walcott, and Walcott's face is distorted from the impact of the punch. Uh, well, Herb Schaffman took that picture. He was my competition. We were both ringside for sport, on assignment for Sports Illustrated. Whether I was on the east side of the ring or the west side of the ring had nothing to think I, I had anything to do with. It was just, this was the position of the ticket I was given, and Herbie was given the ticket on the other side of the ring. And by, by the way, just all the big writers were on Herb's side of the ring. Dick Young, Jimmy Cannon, Red Smith, uh, you know, the great, great boxing writers. Uh, I, I think Jimmy Breslin was ringside that night as well. The mystique in, uh, about the fight was none of them wanted to believe that Ali actually hit 
hit listed. And that's why it became called the Phantom Punch. They just couldn't acknowledge that Liston would, was knocked out in one round by Muhammad Ali. My position was simply a matter of luck. I always like to say what separates good photographers from the ordinary photographers is when you get lucky, you don't miss. And obviously that night I didn't miss. By yeah. the way, Herb Schaffner, the great boxing photographer that I was telling you about, he is looking up at Ali's rear end. Yes, I, I know that. Well, it doesn't um, matter how good he is. That's the picture he's going to get. What is it about that image, the, the ferocity in Ali's taunt? What is it about that image that endures? Interesting. And this, this, I, this I, I've thought about many, many times over many years. So I think I've got it right. It depends on whether you're talking about what is it now or what is it when 1999, what was it maybe in even in 89, and what was it in 1965 when the picture was taken. In 1965, nobody cared about the photograph. It didn't even make the cover of Sports Illustrated. I was shooting on assignment. In fact, Sports Illustrated picked up a picture from Johnny Dominus, great life magazine photographer. I think Ali threw two punches in the fight, in the whole fight. One that knocked Liston out, and the other one uh, was just another punch he threw. That picture was on the cover of the magazine. My picture didn't even make the lead page. It was the closing page of a full page. It was a full page. And maybe a few people patted me on the back and told me, nice shot, life. But that was it. There's a big contest, big awards every year are the Pulitzers, of course. Magazines were not eligible for Pulitzers. But the magazines, have, we had our own version of the Pulitzers, which is called Pictures of the Year. That still exists. It used to be run by Encyclopedia Britannica and the University of Missouri uh, School of Journalism. And the magazines entered very heavy, all the big magazines, Life Magazine, Look Magazine, Saturday Evening Post, Sports Illustrated, Time, Newsweek. We entered National Geographic. It was a big deal to enter. Well, of course, we entered my Ali Liston picture that year. Guess what? It didn't win first prize, didn't win second prize, didn't win third prize, and there are three honorable mentions. It didn't win any of those things, so no one really cared about it in 1965 or 66 or 67. What happened? Oh, and at the end of the century, Sports Illustrated runs it on the cover of an issue they call the greatest sports pictures of the century, and that picture is the cover of it. Why? I think as Ali's reputation and as Ali became the legendary iconic sports figure that he became this is the way people want to remember him he was young he was he was this handsome devil and he was a great athlete and he looks it, it's a very powerful picture when you look at it today as to who Ali became and how we want to remember him well, I always tell people if I had taken that picture at a preliminary fight exactly the same picture at the fight two preliminaries before the big main event Nobody would have cared. That picture would have been buried. It probably would never have been even in any of the books I've done because it would have been an unimportant picture. It became important as Ali became important. You're listening to American Achievers. How did it affect you to define the way the public sees this iconic person? 
Well, I mean, listen, first, I mean, I'd be lying if I didn't tell you how damn proud I am of it. As you know, it's not my favorite picture, and I'll tell you why later we'll get around to, I'm sure, the the one that is my favorite picture. Like everybody else that had the opportunity to work with Muhammad, you know, you'd fall in love with the guy. I mean, you could not have fallen in love with Ali. I just understand, I, no matter what happens in my career, no, what, no matter what else has happened, and I have had a very good career, one day when I'm no longer here and my obituary is written, which I'm sure is going to be many years from now, I am well aware of the fact that the opening sentence is going to say he took the best known, one of the best, if not the best known sports picture of all time. I'm very, very proud of the picture. Believe me, I am, you know, and, uh, and it's made a big difference. Uh, I'm the only photographer that has ever been elected and, and, and inducted into the Boxing Hall of Fame. I don't think anything like that would ever have happened were it not for that picture. Now, obviously, I'm in the Boxing Hall of Fame for a body of work. I, I've been photographing boxing is the one sport I still take pictures of occasionally. I did for my re, for my new book. I mean, I, I covered both big heavyweight fights last year, uh, Ruiz and, uh, and Joshua in Saudi Arabia. And last February, it's, it's closing to my book because we after that, we pretty well started sending things out for production. But I covered the uh, Fury Wilder fight in, on February 22nd last year, a year ago this coming February. Well, you could, you could make the case, I think, that that image is really at the cornerstone of a Mad Men episode. Okay, let's talk about this. I know you, I'm sure you have a thought about this, um, in which Don Draper, the, the star of Mad Men in the 60s, loses, I think, 100 bucks on the second fight. And there's the image of the the black and white version of that photo. I would say, however, that the reason that that endures as a cultural touchstone is because of your image, not the black and white image. And how does that feel? But but that's what, well, for starters, remember, in 1965, 95%, maybe 98% of the newspapers in this country, and really, and in Europe as well, were black and white. I don't know, other than Life Magazine and Sports Illustrated, I don't know who else was even shooting color ringside because there was no ability to print it, you know, and, and certainly to print it fast enough to get it to get in a paper. Newspapers were not in black and white. In fact, I don't know that the fight was, it was televised, and they used to call it closed-circuit television. Today it would be pay-per-view. I believe the closed circuit was even black and white. I don't think there was a color telecast of it. I, I don't know, but I don't think so. But so, so it made a big difference that it was in color. It also made a big difference that Sports Illustrated, this is where magazines spent a ton of money. I mean, we sent a rider truck up to, uh, to Lewiston with strobe light equipment to light the ring, both for, for me, for Herb Schaffman, for the Life magazine photographers. You know, we, uh, we spent money. So the quality of the image is spectacular. Uh, the black and white picture was taken by an Associated Press photographer. He was not the guy right next to my left shoulder, but he was one away. He was There was somebody between the two of us, and his picture's almost identical to mine, but it's black and white. And people were used to seeing black and white fight pictures. They weren't used to seeing color with this kind of quality, and it made it pretty special. But you were, this was the, the golden age of magazines that you Absolutely. were involved in. Absolutely. And people, you know, it's hard for a young person today who is accustomed to waiting not five minutes to get something. Waiting till next week's Sports Illustrated is a foreign concept for, for young people today. But talk to me about that golden age of magazines and, and what you were involved in and the fact that 
that that the readership was um, conditioned to wait for something that was special. Well, it had to be special. That's the key. Look at the writers that Sports Illustrated had. Dan Jenkins, Frank DeFord, John Underwood, uh, Mark Cram. I mean, they had great writers and, and always uh, uh, Whitney Tower, uh, uh, Tex Mall. I mean, the fact of the matter is, if you're a sports fan and the big game is played on Saturday, Saturday or Sunday, and, and I always had a tremendous amount of respect for the newspaper photographers, and, and I, I'm sure that the writers... You know, the, writer, the newspaper writers, some of them were really good writers. Hey, look, many of them, Jim Murray started out at Sports Illustrated, ended up being a Pulitzer Prize-winning sports writer for the L.A. Times. You know, uh, what makes someone want to wait until Thursday? And most people didn't get their magazine until Friday. Thursday is when a lot of people got it, but most people got their magazine on Friday. If you've read the paper on the day after the game, whether it's Sunday morning, if it's college game, or Monday morning, if it's a pro game, uh, or a big fight was Saturday night, you'd see that the next day you read everything that was written about. And they were good writers, very good writers. You saw pictures from very good photographers. Why would you want to wait and why would you be excited on Thursday or Friday to recap last weekend's news? What you're thinking of on, on Friday is tomorrow's game or Sunday's game, the new game next week. It's the reason that it was so hard to get a, a job at these at these magazines was they were expecting you to be creative enough and 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 good enough. Quite frankly, whether you're a writer or a photographer, you had to be good enough imaginative enough, creative enough to bring them something that was worth waiting for. And we didn't succeed every week, but when we did succeed, it made, I mean, look at, again, look at the text. Not only, Sports Illustrated was a beautifully written magazine. We like, I mean, I like to think the photography made the magazine. It was called Sports Illustrated, but the writing... <laughs> It was much better known for its very famous writers. One of them you and I both used to work for. So what were you looking for when you put that camera up, up to your face? With any subject, what were you looking for? It absolutely, it had to do with what the assignment was. Uh, I would say that half my assignments were news coverage of the game. And you're looking, you're looking to get a great picture, hopefully, of the winning or losing moment. Uh, uh, is it the fumble in the end zone that costs you the national championship, or is it the the goal line plunge in the end zone uh, that wins the game for the team? Uh, no, that's not what I mean. I mean, what were you looking for that was the X factor for a lifer photograph? It depended, as I said, no, I was trying, it depended if you were doing news coverage you had to get the news coverage. You couldn't start playing. You can't play around a whole lot. That was the point. So you tried to get a great news picture, a picture that told the story of what happened. But the really favorite assignments of every photographer was when you were not doing news, you were either doing an essay on somebody. For example, uh, I once did, I spent I spent four or five games uh, photographing uh, uh Dick Butkus, when he was a great linebacker for the Chicago Bears. There, I didn't have to worry about that I missed the big play. I was focused on one person, and I wanted to tell a story about why he was so good. 
same same thing with boxing. When one time I did what fashion photographers do, I put Vaseline on the lens so I could obscure the the image somewhat, which would give you the feeling of what it must feel like when you, when your when your vision is being impaired by by the punches you're absorbing. And uh, it really just depended on the assignment. But usually I went into with some idea that I could do something in either kind of assignment. There was a news assignment in the essays. I did photo essays that, you know, what I didn't worry about, that I missed the winning touchdown, that I missed the knockout punch. whole lot of last year when I shot this, I shot a lot of fights in the last two years, boxing for my boxing book. But I wasn't obligated. I wasn't working for Sports Illustrated. I was working for myself. I could go with a wide-angle lens, and if I missed the knockout punch, I wouldn't be happy. But so what? I was trying to get other pictures as well. Uh, when you're doing news coverage, you're obligated to make sure you come back with the story first. When I did take risks, it was intuitive. It was never well planned out. I mean, again, when I was doing news coverage, that was the nature of what I was trying to do was take risk. When I was doing photo essays, the nature of my approach would be to take risks, to try to get something that was not the norm, not what you'd normally see, whether it was a running back or a quarterback or a jockey in the Kentucky Derby or a baseball player, you know, running the bases or, you know, the double play at home plate, whatever it was, it depended on what my assignment was. But when, when someone pays you to go out to cover the news coverage of the game, risk taking has to take a back seat. You've you got to be careful. You can't be risking missing the picture they sent you there. They paid you there to get for them. The magazine always had the option of running wire service picture. These days, of course, they have great pictures coming from Getty. They don't need to run my picture, but they're paying me to get them the best pictures. And therefore, you, you took risks at your own peril, I think, if it was a news coverage. When you were doing a photo essay, uh, maybe a cover. You could take a lot of chances. Then, then, then it was the rule of thumb was to try to take a risk. You wanted to bring something to the photo essay. The photo essay would be in the middle of the magazine or towards the back of the magazine. The news coverage was up front. You didn't want to have the same pictures in your photo essay that were in the news coverage. But did you feel the need continually to top yourself to do something better? Absolutely. I, you know, we're going to talk about my Ali Williams picture, and this might be a good segue to it. And I'm always asked why that's my favorite picture. And I say because the need to do better every time. There are a couple of reasons why you do it. If your shot is many football games or as many baseball games or as many fights as I have, after a while, you've seen every single kind of slide into home plate and the catcher getting the ball knocked out of his glove by the, by the spikes of the player sliding into home plate or the perfect double play with a shortstop or second baseman leaping over the sliding runner. You've seen the goal line plunge, you know, whether it was whether you know whether it was the uh, the play in which the guy is, is is hurtling over the over the middle of the line and he stopped the goal line, which saves a touchdown, or whether he goes in and scores, or maybe he fumbles into the end zone and that costs his team the game because the ball is recovered by the other team uh, in the end zone. You've done it all. How do you get motivated the next week and the week after that and the weekend? You get motivated by looking at. Even your best pictures, the ones where you gave yourself a great, you know, ego-wise, you know, God, God, that was good, boy. I really hit a home run this week. I would look at a picture that was on the cover of the magazine that I thought was just as good as I could take it. And then a week later, or two weeks later, or a month later, I would look at it. I'd always see little things 
Maybe if I had done this, it would have been even better. And I can say this, I can say that about the, the Ali Liston picture. Maybe I was using a wide angle roller flex. I always thought if I had, and I had two cameras on the apron, the other camera was my normal roller flex, which had a, a little tighter lens. Had I actually shot that picture with my other lens, I probably, it would have been even more impactful, I think. Probably not. It gives me reason to remember the next time I'll go with the, with the normal rolling. When I look at the Ollie Williams picture, it's the only picture in my entire life that I ever took that I'm looking at it, it's sitting behind me. It's on the wall in my, the, where I'm sitting right now talking to you. And it's the only picture I've ever taken that after, 50, I think it's 55 years, I took it in 1966. My math is not so good, I think it's 55 years old. It's the only picture I've ever taken that I don't to this day see a single thing I would change. That's pretty remarkable. Well, I hope, yeah, and, and maybe one day I will see something. But I've been looking at that picture you now because you can always it gives you it gives you an incentive to get excited about the next assignment when you think I can do even better than that picture. What was does. it about that particular picture? Well, for starters, it couldn't have been done before that fight, and it couldn't be done today. If you look at the picture, the canvas is without any logos on it. Today, the ring apron is full of logos. It's just a plain canvas-colored ring apron without any promoter's logo, without the name of the hotel that the fight is being being at, without the beer company that's sponsoring the fight. It's old-fashioned three ropes. The press rows are symmetrical all around the ring. Everything about it just is special. The fighters, I love the idea. I told you how much how much I look back at the great days when there was one champion. Every boy that was a sports fan, there were mainly boys that liked boxing, I think, in those days. Every boy that was a sports fan could tell you two things. Who won the World Series last year? And most sports kids, sports fans, could not only tell you who won the World Series last year, but they could give you the starting lineup for each team. I doubt that you'd find many kids who could do that today. And every kid could tell you who the heavyweight champion of the world was and who the middleweight champion of the world was. And maybe maybe the light heavyweight champion and the welterweight champion. Today, who knows? There's a WBO champion, there's a WBC champion, there's an IBF champion. The same thing, the look of the fighters. The fighters come in the ring today, they look, they've got logos all over their trunks, and they they look like wrestlers. I mean, look at Deontay Wilder and Tyson Fury entered the ring in Las Vegas. Fury entered uh, and and was carried into the ring dressed like the King of England. And Wilder was wearing some ridiculous outfit that I can't even describe. I mean, it was the armor, facial piece. It looked he looked like he looked like he was going to war. In, in the 1600s. It is and- the, 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 the spectacle that sports has become in ways like that affected how the way we were related to it. Look at the way Scorsese lit the ring in Raging Bull, which is exactly the way the ring was lit in Madison Square Garden for 100 years. In addition to the fighters, uh, how they dress today, in those days, the champion wore white trunks, the challenger wore black trunks, period. Boxing trunks, not down to the knees or below the knees, you know, boxing trunks. There was something about the tradition that was so wonderful that's missing today. But the lighting, the, the physical being of the arena, and some people find it very exciting. You go to a fight today, and the arena is lit the same way a Rolling Stones concert or Lady Gaga were going to be doing a concert tonight. There are spotlights and colored gels and little fireworks going off in different places, you know. Let's start just straight down lighting. 
people used to be able to smoke. So by the time the main event, there was this haze in the arena and the, filter, the lights filtering through it were more dramatic. It's just a different look. When you go out to shoot events like that and you shot the Olympics, virtually every sport imaginable, when you go out to shoot events like that, are you going out to shoot reality or an artistic version of reality? Well, again, most of the time, most of the events you mentioned, I was doing news coverage. If you're doing news coverage, you are simply going out to shoot reality. You know, you'd, like to, you'd like to put a little twist if you can put... Listen, I mean, the Cleveland Williams Ali picture is reality, but it's also a very innovative way to look at the end of that fight. When, when I was being artistic, as I said, is when I was doing photo essays. When, when I had a chance to do something, you know, that was not about who won or who lost the game. In some instances, it wasn't about who the athlete in the pictures are. It was about art, taking beautiful, beautiful pictures that would live. But just to finish about, you asked me about uh, Cleveland Williams, the point is that picture came from my head. It wasn't luck like Ali Liston where I was in the right seat. I thought of that. I realized when I that when the Houston Astrodome was, was built, they couldn't put the ring lights, the 20 or 25 feet that normally ring lights are over the ring, which wouldn't allow a lens to give you that perspective. There was no lens then other than a fisheye fish lens. And when you use the fisheye lens, the ring looked like a squeezed out basketball. It didn't look square. It was more of a, almost we call a barrel distortion is what the lens would do would, would do to the square ring. So it wouldn't be really square. But the lights at the Houston Astrodome had to be 60, 70, maybe 80 feet over the ring. I forgot exactly how high. And when I saw that, I realized you could take the picture that I ended up taking. I, you know, I was hoping it would be as exciting a picture as I thought it would. But I knew it would be a good picture. And it still qualifies as good news coverage. You know, and that's, I think, the way you approach it when you're not doing pictures that you can get away with taking too much risk with. What's the most important lesson that you have learned in your life, in your career about achieving success? Well, when I got inducted in the Boxing Hall of Fame, I had to make a little speech, which each, each you know, it's really funny. I was sitting between Felix Trinidad and Oxford De La Hoya, who were also inducted in the same class I was. So it was really a thrill. And I got up to make my speech and I told the audience two things. I said, um, I'm often asked two questions. One, I'm asked why boxing is my favorite sport. And I tell people the best, nicest people I met in sports, I met around the boxing ring. And that's always a generalization. There's always a, an exception. But I, you, you don't meet people like Ali and Joe. That's Fraser. a little counterintuitive <laughs> for yeah. most people. Well, but, but yeah, but it's true. It was true in my case. The second thing about my career that I tell them is, I'll tell you, and I always say the same, I tell the same story, I, and I said this at the Hall of Fame, I said, listen, I lecture these days, I lecture on cruise ships two or three times a year, and I probably do one lecture a year, usually I get invited to some, you know, either it's a photojournalism class at that University of Texas. I did one of those. I've done a couple in Washington, D.C. I've done a couple in, in Massachusetts. I get invited to lecture to students, young journalism students, except in my case, they're studying photojournalism. And I always get the same question. The question is, how can I have a career like yours? Well, I don't want to sit there and tell them, well, it's a little difficult since there is no more Life magazine. There is no more Look magazine. There's no really Sports Illustrated now monthly. But I tell them instead, I tell them, listen, you know how, how famous Joe Namath is for guaranteeing a Super Bowl win? I tell people, I say, listen, I said, 
I tell a group of students, I will guarantee you a career every bit as good as mine. All you have to do is go out and find yourself a subject like Muhammad Ali, hitch your wagon to his parade, and you can't miss. Spend 40, 50 years photographing that subject, and you will have every bit as good a career as I did. Obviously, not so easy to have happen, but I believe that. I mean, Muhammad made heroes out of all of us. I don't think I would have had anywhere near the career that I had were it not for Ali. And what was it about Ali that that made him so visually interesting? He liked he liked the camera. First, I mean, he was movie star good looking as a young as a young man, and he was good. He was a good looking older man. Listen, he never met a camera, a microphone, a writer with a pen, and and the worst. The worse you wrote about him, the more he would try to win you over. He, he used to love giving it to Dick Young of the Daily News, who really wrote very harshly about Ali. And Ali was determined to win, to win Dick Young over. And I think he did in terms of his boxing skill towards the end. He gave you, if you needed 20 minutes, he gave you 45 minutes. And, uh, and there were times when I had a lot longer than that with him. You know, you go to do a cover shoot and most subjects, they got 20 minutes. 15, 20 minutes, you have to be prepared and you shoot what you're supposed to do. With Ali, he always had new ideas. He, with writers, he would put his arm around every writer and whisper, I'm, I'm going to give you the, I got an exclusive for you. Keith, I've got a big exclusive for you. Well, he had just given the same exclusive to three other writers, you know? Look at the, the way he and, and Howard Cosell played each other for so many years. I just told someone the other day, there's a great movie in that right there. But they both understood how to play each other. But the fact of the matter is that subjects, you know, it's really interesting because I know, Keith, that you wrote, I believe, his memoir on, on Bear Bryant. My favorite subjects, a couple of my favorite subjects outside of Ali, Ed Koch was mayor of New York. He was six foot one or so, a little slightly stumped over. He had a beer belly, not a beer because he wasn't a beer drinker, but he had a belly. He, wasn't, he was balding. He was anything but a handsome man. You couldn't take a bad picture of the guy. He lit up. I, I call it a visual charisma. I used to tell him he was a Muhammad Ali of politics, of New York politics. Bear Bryant was every bit. You couldn't take a bad picture of Bryant. He just liked the camera. So was Yogi Berra and Casey Stengel. I mean, I'm talking about many years ago, obviously. But there are subjects that just, I, I don't know what it is. They just like the camera and the camera loves them. And Bryant was one of them. I mean, you couldn't take a bad picture of the guy. You had a very memorable several months assignment for Bryant. And again, one of your iconic pictures, when you moved over to Time Magazine uh, in 1980, uh, there's this wonderful picture of Bryant on the cover, a football coach on the cover of Time Magazine. I don't know how many times that's happened, but very few. Not very often. Not very often. Tell me about that, about that series that you did. Well, you know, I mean, uh, a New York Yankee going down to photograph Alabama, you know, I, I certainly had no rooting. I mean, I had, listen, I was glued to the to the game when they played Notre Dame last night. In fact, I watched it. I watched it with Gabe Talese, who's a writer on my on my boxing book. And Gabe, of course, is a graduate of the University of Alabama and still a big Bama fan. I got assigned to do Bear Bryant for Time Magazine. And I'd photographed him before, but I really had never met him. I certainly had spoken to him. And again, we had the luxury at Sports Illustrated doing at, at Sports Illustrated and at Time Magazine of doing things in a way that mo most publications wouldn't spend the money on. So what happened when I first got the assignment that I knew I wanted to spend a good amount of time with Bryant and I knew what the problems were going to be. 
during a football game, Bryant walked from 45-yard line to 45-yard line. And because of the other players on the sideline and coaches, you really couldn't see him. So I knew, among things, I needed to see if he'd let me in front of the bench during the game, which photographers are not permitted between the 35-yard lines. I also wanted to photograph him at home, perhaps with his wife. I wanted to shoot. I needed a cover shoot. So... Sports Illustrated had an excellent, excellent relationship with the University of Alabama. John Underwood had written a, a, a number of stories and timing in general. I, I think that Alabama liked timing. They liked Time Magazine. They liked Sports Illustrated. I remember I, I called the publicist, the, the PR director at the University of Alabama, and I said, I'd like to come down and talk to Coach Bryant. And he said something on the phone to me. You, you want to take I said, no, I don't want to talk to him. I just want to come down. I don't want to photograph him. I just want to come down and talk to him. I want to tell him what we're hoping to do. And they set up an appointment. And I could see when I walked in the office, first off, I am positive that in all the years Bryant was coaching, he had never seen a photographer in a tie and jacket. I came down with a tie and jacket. <laughs> you know, we don't work that way. That is not the way photographers work, uh, you know, uh, we're on the sidelines. It's, you, if, if it's hot, you're sweating. If it's cold, you're bundled up. Sometimes it's dirty. Uh, if it's raining, there's mud. We don't wear a tie and jacket. I came down with a tie and jacket, and when I, I was ushered into Brian's office. And I think we hit it off immediately because of what I'm just about to tell you. Brian, he's sitting at his desk, and I could see he was a little uneasy. He didn't quite understand. One, this guy's a photographer, and he's in a, he's in a, I wasn't in a suit. I was in a sport jacket and a, and a tie and, and slacks, not jeans, and, and shoes, not sneakers. He kept looking for the camera bag. I remember he was looking around, this, kept looking side to side. And finally, I say, he said, so what do you want to shoot? I said, I don't have any cameras. I didn't come down to shoot. I want to tell you what we need to do, what I'm hoping to do, because Time Magazine is hopeful of put, putting you on the cover of the magazine. And I remember something he said that was incredible to me. I'll never forget it. He said, they really want to put me on the cover of Time Magazine? And I said, yes. He said, well, I'd be honored to be on the cover of Time Magazine. That's not something you'd expect to hear from a coach. Most of them couldn't care. They'd rather win Saturday's game than be in the cover of Time Magazine. You got to understand, you're a kid from the Lower East Side. He's from the sticks of Arkansas. And when you put him on the cover of Time Magazine in 1980, basically, it was at the height of the Bryant era. Right. So we talked for about 20, 25 minutes, maybe half an hour in his office. And I shook hands and I told him what I wanted to do. I remember I said, one of the things, I want to photograph you with your wife at home. And he said to me, was it Mary Harmon? Was that a name? I think it's Mary Harmon. Yeah. He said, he said, nobody tells Mary Harmon what to do. You want to, you want to, I'll put her on the phone. You talk to her. He said, if she lets you come, that's good with me. He said, but I can't, I can't say yes to that. I told him I wanted to photograph him at halftime in the dressing room. He said, okay, I can let you do that. I said, what about letting me in front of you on the bench? That was the funniest part. I said, would you allow me to photograph you on the bench? And I told him why. He asked me why. I said, because I can't see you from the 35-yard line. You, you, you don't, unless he, was, unless he was protesting a call and ran down to talk to one of the officials, he really didn't leave the center of the field. A lot of coaches work the sidelines from the 30 to the 30. They go, you know, you can get close. So... He said, okay. He said, I'll let you do that. And he, and he signed Mike. He said, you come in for the game. Give me, 
I'll, I'll write down, let me reduce you. He had two security, well, it was two Alabama troopers that, that worked with him, that protected him at the end of the game, made sure he could get off the field without being jostled by the crowd or whatever. But he, uh, he said, he looked at me and he said, so here's the way it's going to work. He said, you can be on the sideline the whole game. You can work right in front of me, he said. But it's just simple, he said. I'm number one on that sideline. You're number two. You get in my way once. And you're out of here. He said, the coaches, he said, my coaches, my players, they're number three. He said, you're number two. You can be right up there with me, but don't get in my way. That's all. And, of course, the first couple of times, I did throw about three games that way, three or four games. And I never got in his way. And then I had this idea for this cover, this portrait I wanted to shoot. And uh, it was a blessing. I mean, I, I love that picture. I told you I won no awards with my Ali Liston picture. And and by the way, the Ali Williams picture also didn't win any awards, not even honorable mention. And at the end of the century, people are praising it as one of the great sports pictures. My Bear Bryant picture, my cover picture of Bear Bryant in Ren and Time magazine. And not only did it win first prize, but it didn't win it at sports. It won it for portraits, which I'm very proud of. It's a so. remarkable picture. And do, do you ever stop and think that there are people who are not alive in 1980, who do not remember Bear Bryant as a living and breathing creature, who see him through images like yours, and that makes him real? Your role in that. Do, do you ever stop and think about that? Well, with him, I, I've always thought, you know, like Ali, he was just a wonderful man. And my role in it was was to show that. You try to show that through your pictures. A writer tries to bring out that the personality of the guy, whatever. I try to do the same thing, and I, I hope I did with Bryant. Uh, he was a wonderful man. Well, I watched him. I was in the dressing rooms. I was at practice. The guy was really a, a decent, wonderful, caring guy, and he treated me just wonderfully. Every time I'd come down, he'd ask me how my family was, what I was up to. But the best story of all of them, I, I shot him in 79, and I made a, uh, it ran in 1980, I believe, the Time cover. And I had just gone to Time magazine, but in I took a six-month leave of absence from Time magazine in the middle of 1978 because I got the opportunity to direct a feature film. I wanted to be the next Stanley Kubrick or Steven Spielberg. You know, I got a chance to direct a feature film, film that would play in theaters, hopefully all over the world, in London. And uh, the film starred Ian McShane. And the only American in its female lead was Suzanne Summers, who was then a star on Three's Company. And it was a thrill. I spent six months living in London, and then I went, we came back, and I ended up going back to Time Magazine to continue working there, which I loved the job. I wanted to be a filmmaker, but I was very happy as a photographer as well. Six months later, and my film is finished, and they're going to have a premiere. The film was written by Jackie Collins, so Joan, Joan Collins' sister. So we had a big premiere in London. In the West, they call it the West End Theatres. It would be the equivalent of a Broadway opening in, or, or a Hollywood, the Chinese, Grauman's Chinese Theatre opening in, uh, you know, in Hollywood for, for an American film. Anyway, I flew to London to uh, be at the premiere. My flight back was the day before the Sugar Bowl game, I would always say hello to Coach Bryant before the game. In fact, they usually I'd have to go to him so he would write in the back of my credential and tell the security guys that I could work in front of the bench. This was going to be the last game we would have a chance to get in the magazine. We closed it. We ran the cover at the beginning of the following season. 
but this was my last game I would be shooting. And I always intended to say hello to, to Bryant. But before I went to London, I covered a game, and Bryant asked me what I was up to, what I was doing for the holidays, and I told him I'm going to London because my film is going to premiere there. He asked me about the film, and I think I told him, you know, what the storyline was. It was it was Rocky with soccer as the sport, and I was the director of the film. And I said, I'm going to be in London, but I would be at the Sugar Bowl game. Well, it turned out that my flight to New Orleans that morning was delayed with weather or whatever, as that time of year happens so often. I didn't land in New Orleans until probably an hour before the game. By the time I got to the stadium, the warm-ups had, had ended already, and, and they, they were coming out to start the game. I never had a chance to say hello to Brian, period. And there was no way to talk to him before the game, you know, uh, well, when just, just as they're about to start play. When the game was over and Alabama won the, won the national championship, the players carried Bryant off the field on their shoulders. As you know, that's, that's before people started dumping a bucket of dirty Gatorade on their coaches. <laughs> I can't, and particularly Bryant with his hat, I can't imagine. I always like to think about what Paul Brown or, or, or uh, the great uh, Chicago Bears coach, George Hallis, or even, even, a, even someone, Vince Lombardi, or, or, or the Dallas Cowboy coach, who was always a fancy dresser. Uh, uh, Tom Landry, yeah. Landry would have thought, I can't imagine dumping a bucket of Gatorade in the cold at Green Bay. I mean, I think Lombardi would have killed him. Whoever did that, you know? But anyway, they carried Bryant off the field. And of course, photographers are right in front of him walking backwards. And I was, I might have been six feet from Bryant at that point. And he looks down and he says, Neil, I wondered you, you didn't come here to see me before the game or something. I said, Coach, I, my, my flight was delayed and I just got in, it was too late, but congratulations. And he looked down at me, and I will never forget this as long as I live. This has to be one of the great moments in his life. He's just won the national championship again for, for Alabama. And he looked down and he says, how did your premier go? How did, the, how did it go in London? And I remember I almost started crying. It was such, a, such an incredible, that this man would care about that or remember that. And it was, it was a wonderful, it just made me realize how right I was about this guy's character and what kind of, you know, what kind of human being he was. He was just a wonderful man. And there's also something else about that that story that that touches me is that you're a professional, you're behind the ropes at so many places, sports and then beyond sports. You shot Reagan, you shot uh, Paul Newman, uh, the Pope, all kinds of people. At some point in your life, you just have to pinch yourself and say, man, I was a poor kid on the Lower East Side and look at me now. All the time. I still do, by the way. You know, listen, I was ringside on the apron in Saudi Arabia. A Jewish boy and a Jewish boy with a female assistant in, who's right behind me at, at, the, at the fight, you know, helping me with the cameras. I never dreamed of those things. I flew with Top Gun. I always I figured out early on that my camera was my ticket to the world. I mean, you know, I spent 10 minutes in the Oval Office alone with Ronald Reagan. For Time Magazine. Now, now remember, you, don't fool yourself. It isn't Neil Leifert that they let into these things. It's Time Magazine. Would Bryant have ever, if somebody picked the phone up and said, I want to come down and meet Coach Bryant to talk to him about spending a lot of time shooting pictures, the entree was Time Magazine or Sport. After that, it's a matter of what kind of rapport you build up. But I pinch myself all the time now. What do you think that uh, a young person today can take from your life and learn about 
chasing success. Study medicine, law. I know. <laughs> like, oh, you know, Bryant used to say, uh, if you can find something else to do besides coaching football, do it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, listen, I would never discourage anyone from trying to do what I accomplished as a photographer. The fact is the business changed. There is no, the, the opportunity isn't there. I had the opportunity and I capitalized on it. But, the, mean, but the building blocks, regardless of what the, what the profession is, the building blocks of your success are dreaming big. Tell me what they were. I think it's a work ethic, which I, my father and mother were both, they both worked and I got a work ethic from them. I'm very proud. My kids are both the same. I had a very, very, I have a very good work ethic. I, if you're going to do the job, you do it to the best of your ability. I've never tried to do anything halfway. I've always tried my best to, to just be the best at what I did. I also prided myself in my integrity. There were a lot of sharp elbows in photojournalism. A lot of, you know, a lot of times photographers were, were trying to hurt their competitor so they could, they could win, get the cover of the magazine. I always wanted to do it with integrity. And the proof of that is my two most successful competitors, Walter Yost and Jim Drake, it's 40, 50 years later, and we are still very, very good friends. You know, I just, I wanted to beat them every week, but I wanted to beat them by taking better pictures, not by screwing anybody. Uh, so I, th I think just having, ha having integrity, hard work ethic, being well prepared. I was always the first person in the stadium. Now, now, even when I say that, there are people with a different approach. Walter Yost is as good a sports photographer as ever lived, and he was my major competitor. He had a completely different approach. He'd show up at the stadium when the national anthem was being played. He he never understood that you had to put new batteries in the camera to make sure that the battery drive, the motor drive, was operating as it should operate. He didn't like the cold. Yet he never, you know, if you sent him to Minnesota or Green Bay, you, you never knew whether he'd freeze or get. But he never missed. He did me. I'm the first person in the stadium. I always had my cameras were in perfect working condition. I had done some studying. I looked at what time, what time is the shadow going to cross the field? Because the shadow might determine what sideline I want to shoot from light, light wise. I want to backlight the, if you're in Minneapolis and it's freezing cold or Green Bay and you want to, you want to, you want to show that, then you want to backlight the players because the breath, when you're breathing in, in the cold air, you can see the breath hanging in the air, little, like little puffs of clouds, you know? I was always very well prepared. I always did my homework. That's the only way I could succeed. But then there are people like Walter Yost who it's, it's intuitive. They, I, I always used to call Walter a genius because I think if Walter took my approach, he wouldn't have been nearly as good as he was. I always think, you know, there are writers, there are writers that slave over pieces. I remember at Sports Illustrated, there are people, and then there are some writers who just sit down and it just comes. Uh, Mark Cram was a great boxing writer at Sports Illustrated. He worked so hard to get the piece, but he wrote beautifully. Uh, Dan Jenkins, Dan Jenkins could close the bar and still write the best college football piece you've ever seen, you know? Whatever God gift you have and how you use it. Is a matter for me. It was a matter of being well prepared, having done my homework, knowing what I was what I was hoping to get, knowing what the possibilities might be in a particular arena, a particular stadium, and then executing. And you've continued to challenge yourself. You've moved into documentary filmmaking. Uh, you have uh, published several books, including a new one. Tell me about your new book. Well, the new book is, and and you're supposed to always say this is the best one ever, but this is the best one ever. I've been lucky enough to have Tashin as my publisher, and I don't know if 
people are familiar with Tashin books, but they are the four. He is it's owned by a company, a man named Benedict Tashin, and it is without question they publish the best coffee table and the most expensive, but they publish beautiful coffee table books. And I've just had a book called Lifer Boxing. It's 60 years of my boxing photographs. It starts as 16-year-old I shot from a $5 seat at Yankee Stadium from the, what you call the nosebleed seats in the stadium. I shot Patterson Johansson, the first fight, heavyweight championship of the world, and it goes right up to last February's uh, Tyson Fury, Deontay Wilder championship fight, heavyweight fight in Las Vegas. It's beautifully produced. I, I won't even tell you how expensive it is, but it's expensive, but it is a spectacular book, and I am, I've thrilled. And the writer, oddly enough, the writer, the text is written, uh, my football book with Tashin, we used excerpts of pieces from Jim Murray, great sports writer for the LA Times. So for this book, I discovered as I, uh, my friend Gay Talese, one of the great writers, and Gay Talese, who I've gotten to know very well over the years, loved boxing. And when he was a young writer at the New York Times, he covered fights. He wrote sports for the New York Times, covered a lot of fights at Madison Square Garden, and wrote some wonderful pieces, odd pieces, uh, not the news covers of the fight, but personalities. Uh, he wrote a piece about the dentist who, who created the mouthpiece for boxers because he couldn't understand why they were getting their teeth mangled. Of course, when he, when he tried to get boxers to wear it, they all thought, what, what kind of man wears a mouthpiece when he fights? He's the writer for this book. So the combination of a gay Talese text, we use excerpts from his, we used 11 of his boxing pieces in the book to start off, just like we had used uh, Jim Murray's pieces in, in my football book, which was an early Atasha book. Are you still able to, to get excited about what you do? Yeah, yeah, but I'm, I, I don't do that much. When I do something, I'm going to get excited about it. This book I worked on for the last year, I was thrilled as we were doing layout, laying out pages because I knew how special it is. This is going to be my legacy book for sure. I think you stay a lot younger if you keep working and particularly if you're lucky enough to work on things that you like. That's the key to so much success is that find something that you love and figure out how to be good at it, right? Exactly. Well, that's, that's what got me started in photography to begin with is I discovered that I could put together two things that I loved, sports and photography. And in terms of my ability to, to go to the best events and sit in the best seat in the house, there is no better seat than being on the ring apron at a heavyweight championship fight or being right next to the dugout at the World Series or roaming the sidelines at the National Championship College football game or at the Super Bowl. And a photographer gets all those opportunities. How else would I have been in the Oval Office with Ronald Reagan or in the backseat of an F-14 with Top Gun? You know, I used my camera to open every door that I wanted to open. Was there any door that you couldn't get through with that camera? Oh, there have been plenty of... Listen, I, we're only talking about my successful pictures, not the failures. Uh, Tell me sure. about your failures. That's more interesting. I, I would have to think about it. Uh, there were a couple of times when I just didn't have a good day, you know, with big games where I didn't have my best day where you don't succeed for as many years as I did by missing too often, but I missed plenty. I can't think of a specific example. I mean, I'll tell you one idea, okay, that I had that didn't work. I loved shooting photo essays. It's not news coverage for Time Magazine. So I did, I spent seven weeks in Kenya shooting the animals of Africa and we ran a cover story on Africa. 
big photo essay on the animals. Uh, I spent one year doing prisons in America. I did all, I did seven different prisons. And the seventh one we treated was, I, I got to photograph Charles Manson in prison. And we treated, it was, it was on, it's called the Inmate Nation. I did a lot of things, but I had an idea once and I, I don't want to consider it a failure because uh, obviously uh, it didn't come close to happening the way I wanted it to, but I got to ski with Gerald Ford when he was president, and it was a great thrill. And I remember thinking, "Was Chevy Chase along on that one?" Uh, no, David Kennerly was. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, the White House photographer who was my friend who got me to get. But I ski. This wasn't a press pool. This was, you know, he was in Vail on on his winter vacation, and and I got a chance to ski with him as a guest, and that was a great thrill. I rode the chairlift with him. When I did that, I started thinking to myself. How many presidents relax through sport? Look at all the presidents that play golf. One of the presidents, there was a bowling alley in the in the White House that was put there because one of the presidents... Yeah, Nixon, I think, did that. And I, yes, and I thought, wouldn't it be great to do an essay on world leaders relaxing through sport? This was a way, you know, whether you whether it's getting out on the golf course or whether in Ford's case was skiing or playing tennis. We had bureaus all over the world at Time Magazine at the time. This was the Time Magazine that I, I, I skied. I skied when I was still with Sports Illustrated, but when I came up with this idea to do an essay on the idea of world leaders relaxing through sport, I had read about Pope John Paul, who as a young man was a very avid skier, and was a sports enthusiast, loved to swim. He put a swimming pool in it the way, at the Vatican, and he would swim every day. And all I could think of is, what a picture. You know what Italian swimsuits look like. I could see the Pope in his Speedo, and I thought, this is a picture I want to get. And so I... I'm not I, sure yeah. that's an image we can get out of her mind at the moment. No, well, neither could I. And when I told the managing editor, he looked at me and started laughing. I said, I said I'd like to send the Rome Bureau a, a, an e- a telex. We said that we didn't have email in those days. I want to send them a telex asking if they couldn't request a chance for me to photograph Pope in his pool. Obviously, I wanted to get him getting into the pool where you could see the Speedo suit, but I'd have taken him in the pool where you could just see his head. And the managing editor... Wasn't a guy who laughed a whole lot, but he just couldn't believe he started laughing. He said, go for it. What do we got to lose? So I sent off, nice Jewish boys sent off a telex to the Rome Bureau. And of course, with the blessing of the managing editor, they're going to they're gonna at least understand this is serious. It wasn't a joke. And I think it must have driven them crazy. And of course, a little bit of time went by and they said, we ran it by someone at the Vatican. I have no idea if they really did. And it isn't something they're willing to willing willing to allow us to do. But that's an essay that I wanted to get and I missed. And I, I never got as far as to think of what was Brezhnev doing and for sport and what was uh, whoever else we would have shot at the time. I don't remember what world leaders were, were the obvious ones, but it would have been a fun essay. But the key to it would have been getting the Pope in his, in his Speedo suit. When you think back to that kid who uh, had to deliver sandwiches to be able to you know, do other things, to, to buy a camera to get started in this business... What would you, if you had an opportunity like said, to talk to that kid, what would you tell him about his future? I, I would have said, just follow your dream. You know, if you have a dream, as I said, I, I really do believe that what made me successful was going through that period of my life. I think the way I was raised and the way I grew up, I had an appreciation for hard work and, and what you could accomplish if you worked real hard and had dreams and, and, and got a little lucky. You know, luck is a funny word. You always seem modest when you I've never met a good modest photographer, by the way. If you meet a photographer who's modest, his photographs usually aren't very good, or her photographs. 
So I have a healthy ego, but I also understood how important it was to have dreams and be willing to work hard to accomplish them. The sky doesn't open up and suddenly give, I, I mean, it's nice to get lucky, but you have to get lucky and then take advantage of the luck. I used every opportunity I had when I got lucky to, to make the most of it. And uh, being in that seat when Cassius, when Muhammad Ali uh, knocked down uh, Sonny Liston right in front of me in Lewiston, Maine, that was luck. Getting the picture was executing. And that's what you have to do. Thanks to Lane McGibney and all the good folks at Boutwell Studios for all the TLC required to bring this podcast to life. And audio engineers Joe Beeman and Jonathan W. Hickman. Remember, everyone has a special talent. You just need to identify it, cultivate it, and be willing to pay the price. You, too, can become an American Achiever.